0: Well, if you would, I'd invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We are going to pick up back where we left off the last time I was up here. Nate's been going through the Psalms. I will be uh, in Acts for these next two weeks, two Lord's Days from now. We're going to have Johnny Finlayson with us. He's an assistant pastor at Trinity Church Seattle. Um, And then I believe Nate is picking up another New Testament series. But for this week and next, we're going to be in Acts. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And if you would, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 42, then hear now the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, here in these verses, we get a summary statement, an overview of the life of the church in its infancy. And as we walk through this passage, I want us to let it serve us as something of a spiritual diagnostic test. Just as when we have our annual wellness exam and we get our vitals checked, I want us to let God's word examine us this morning. And I say that because here in verses 42 through 47, we're shown something of a healthy, thriving church. One commentator gives these verses, the model church. That's the title he gives these verses. And clearly, this is a church that is experiencing God's blessing and the Spirit's power at work. And we're not given any commands in this text, just information. We're simply told about a budding church blessed by God. And so I think we're given an opportunity here to evaluate our own lives, both as individuals but then also as a body, and to ask ourselves, how am I doing? How are we doing? About two to three times a year, I'll do something like this, and I know many of you surely do something similar. I'll find some solitude, open my journal, and ask God to help me see where I'm strong and where I'm weak. Am I being faithful in my calling as a husband, as a father? Am I being faithful vocationally? Am I stewarding the gifts and the opportunities God has given me? What sin in my life do I need to repent of? and so on. Well, here in Acts 2, I think we have a similar opportunity. We observe here the basic DNA of a flourishing church. And as we do so, we let God's word examine us so that we might see where we're strong and where we're weak. And ultimately, our purpose, our hope, is that God would help us to lead lives pleasing to him. So we've got six verses this morning, and we're going to proceed by considering three fundamental commitments that we see here among God's people. And these three commitments will be the rubric as we prayerfully God asked to help us in this self-evaluation. And again, not just personally, but as a body, communally. So three commitments of a flourishing church. Firstly, we see that there's a commitment to worship. A flourishing church is committed to worship. And of course, there's a sense in which all of what we see here in Luke's summary might be considered worship. And really, each one of these commitments that we're going to look at, they bleed into one another, and they can't be neatly separated. Our entire lives are lives of worship when we live to please God. right? Whether that's mowing the lawn and being grateful to God that you have a lawn, or singing your lungs out here at church— we always have the opportunity to live in such a way as to call it worship. Now, having said that, there are a few particulars here that teach us about worship, especially worship considered in a narrow sense, in the sense of special ways in which we dedicate ourselves to God. So first then, first lesson we're taught here about worship is that worship begins with the word, always. The Word of God is the first thing, and it is the central thing. In verse 42, Luke gives us this list of four things the disciples devoted themselves to, and the list probably serves as a summary, actually, of of all the verses that follow through 47. These four things capture all of it, and at the head of this list stands God's Word. And actually, Luke writes in his words that the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What we see here in Acts is that after Christ ascended, the apostles understood themselves to be God's spokesmen, to be his messengers. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Jesus made this promise to the 12 in John 16. He said, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. In Acts 1, of course, he tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses. So the apostles had this self-understanding that they were God's messengers. Now, what's much harder to explain here at a historical level is how many Jews in the first century, thousands upon thousands, also came to share in this belief. Because what we know about the Jews is that after the Babylonian exile, which We just read about, Theo was just in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is looking forward to the time when they're going to be taken away. They were disciplined for their idolatry, for worshiping other gods. After that time, when they came back, historically we know the Jews were adamantly opposed to syncretism, and they were fiercely devoted to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, what they had then. So basically, a a Jew is not going to believe a new teaching without some very clear evidence that it's from God. And so this explosion of belief among the Jews in the first century, many Jews still opposed the gospel, but many believed, that is a very difficult thing to explain historically. Unless, Unless what we read in verse 43 is true. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done the apostles. I want us to think about this for a moment. If if all the accounts and miracles, we've kind of talked about this, and I want to keep pressing on these apologetic points, right? We have a reliable word here as we open God's word. If all these accounts are just made up, it really is very difficult, nearly impossible to account for how all these Jewish people, again, people fiercely committed to the scriptures they already had, how they would have believed these 12 very ordinary men from Galilee. and At the end of the day, the most plausible explanation for the growth of Christianity, especially again among the Jews here, is that the biblical account is true. God confirmed the message through signs and wonders. And if in fact the apostles spoke on behalf of God, then this book... is the the book around which our lives need to orbit. It's here that Jesus now speaks, and discipleship begins and ends for us with listening to his voice. So human words penned by human authors, and yet they are the very words of God. And so much more could be said on this first point regarding worship, but let me just tie it off with this simple encouragement. Cherish the word of God. Cherish the word of God. And if you don't cherish it now, if, if that hunger for God's word is, is at a low ebb, ask God to give you more of a hunger. Sometimes we need to develop a habit, right? To, to train our taste buds to love the word of God. Open it in the mornings. Meditate on it. Come every Lord's day expecting to hear God speak to you through his word. And Trust and pray that as you do so, God will speak to you. He will grow you and strengthen you and give you his joy. So worship begins with the word. That's the first thing. Secondly, worship is centered upon the Lord Jesus and his finished work. It's centered upon Jesus. And still now in verse 22, the breaking of the bread is listed as the third thing that the disciples devoted themselves to. And I skip the second thing. We're going to come back to that in the second main point. Uh, but the third thing here, this phrase, the breaking of bread, very likely refers not merely to the sharing of common meals, but certainly taking place here in Acts 2. But there's good reason to believe that Luke here is speaking of the Lord's Supper, the meal in which Jesus Christ broke bread the bread. All three of the synoptic gospel writers say that he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. And so Luke includes the definite article here. This isn't just a breaking of bread. This is the breaking of bread. This was a distinct practice that was unique to Christ's disciples. And that's partly why it makes this list. But it's not just unique, it's central. In the Lord's Supper, The central part of the gospel and the central part of the whole storyline of scripture is put on display. And that is Jesus giving his body and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. With his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53. Jesus was sinless and he lived a perfect life, yet he suffered the penalty of death and endured God's holy wrath against our sin, so that we might be forgiven. And now in him we have peace and friendship with God. That is the good news of the gospel. And it's instructive to us that the disciples are celebrating it frequently. We need often to be reminded of the deep, deep love of God for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Christian, do you believe that this morning, that God loves you, and he loves you deeply? It's easy to forget, and that's why we have this table. It's easy to forget just how much God cares for us, and so we celebrate the Lord's Supper frequently as the first disciples did, so that God might again fix our attention on Jesus and remind us of his mercy and love, Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day Ultimately, worship is centered upon Jesus and receiving the gift of new life that he gives. So that's the second thing. Worship begins with the word, centered on the Lord Jesus. And then, thirdly, worship is a dialogue. Worship is a dialogue. The disciples devoted themselves, lastly in verse 42, to the prayers. And probably what Luke is referring to here are simply the communal prayers of the disciples. John Calvin writes, It is certain that he speaks of public prayer. And for this cause, it is not sufficient for men to make their prayers at home by themselves, unless they also meet all together to pray. So this too is one of the many things we need to evaluate ourselves on. Are we devoting ourselves to praying with other believers? We pray here together on the Lord's Day. And we sing and we worship and we confess our sins and we respond to God in the liturgy. And all that is wonderful. But it shouldn't stop there. In the book of Acts, we see believers praying together a lot. As they're waiting for the Spirit in Acts 1. As they're seeking Judas's replacement again in Acts 1. As they begin facing persecution in Acts 4. As they ordain deacons in Acts 6 and so on. The church is regularly crying out to God at every major juncture. And simply as a habit, the church is praying together, and so should we. And here at Ascension, it's a wonderful thing that we have regular prayer meetings. The men get together once a month on Saturday morning. The women have been getting together for years now. They've made a regular habit of praying. But again, it's not just about these formal scheduled meetings. Whenever we're together, whenever we're hanging out as guys or women when you're together, we have to evaluate those times. We should ask ourselves, do we spend any of that time to stop and pray for one another? You know, as believers, that is our primary identity. We are children of God constantly in need of Him. And there are so many needs in our midst and in our world. And God hears us when we cry out to Him. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. It's Matthew 7. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. First Peter 3. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James 5. So yes, God is sovereign, but he sovereignly uses our prayers to bring about his purposes. And that's how revivals are often started. Through simple prayer meetings. Through God's people gathering together. And then it grows. And there's more people praying regularly for the salvation of the lost. So often, historically, we can look back and say it started with a prayer meeting. God works through our prayers. So firstly, then a flourishing church is committed to worship. It begins with the word. It's centered Upon Jesus, and it's a dialogue. It involves our response to God. That's the first main point. So secondly, then, a flourishing church is committed to fellowship. A flourishing church is committed to fellowship. And what we discover here in Luke's summary is that the fellowship of this budding church was deep and profound. It was concrete. Luke writes in verse 44, "...and all who believed were together and had all things in common." Now, when I read these words, it's hard for me not to think of a family. There's a real depth of relationship and care here spoken of. The disciples are together, Luke writes. And the Greek phrase behind that word together, sometimes it indicates a spatial togetherness, being physically, actually together in one place. And sometimes it indicates a unity of spirit, a harmony, an agreement that exists between people. And no doubt, Luke here intends both senses. In the following verses, it's clear that the believers are, in fact, spending time together. They're going to the temple together, and they're in one another's homes. We see that in verse 46. It's hard to love people that you don't spend time with. You have to spend time with people if you're going to love them. And this is a sub-point, but hospitality in particular is part of the DNA of a flourishing church. They were breaking bread in their homes, Luke writes. I would say if it's possible for those who have homes and are in a position to share their homes with others, we should aim to have one another over frequently, often, with some regularity. Maybe that's once a month for you, maybe that's twice a month, once a week. Some of you have people over in your homes more than once a week. And that's wonderful. Of course, we're not given any rules here for how this ought to look. Luke isn't prescribing what every believer ought to do. Rather, he's simply describing the life of this early church, these first disciples who were together a lot, day by day, Luke writes. And I think the key here for us is that, again, we should get together often. That's intentionally a relative term because, again, there's no divine metric for how this ought to look. The author of Hebrews says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We shouldn't neglect the habit of meeting together, either for corporate worship on the Lord's day or amidst the normal ebb and flow of our weeks. And ultimately, faithfulness in this area may look a lot different for you than it does for the person sitting next to you. And that's okay. Some of you are in a good position to have people in your homes, and and not everyone is in that position. So pray, ask God to show you what hospitality looks like. Some of you will be the inviters more often, and some of you will be the invitees more often. But let's try and be together often. Let's spend time together, and let's do so in one another's homes. So there's a physical Togetherness that we see. And then there's a togetherness here in the sense of unity and harmony among these disciples. And we see this in their care for one another. Again, back in verse 44, we read that they had all things in common. And then verse 45 spells out what this actually looked like. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this. This is sacrificial love. I'm sure as many of you have read this before, you've been a little bit unsettled because of how radical this love is. And perhaps you've asked yourself, should we be doing that today? Does that have to happen today? Should our love look like this? And I think the answer for us is twofold, at least. I think yes. Yes. Again, this summary here is intended to tell us something about the DNA, the fundamental DNA of a flourishing church. We are to be a people of selfless love with our minds and hearts set on one another. What are the needs of my sister and my brother here in this body? What are the trials that they are facing? How can I be used of God to bless them? Perhaps. For some of you, Paul's words in Philippians 2 have already come to mind. We were just in Philippians not too long ago. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain how Christ is our great example, the Lord of heaven and earth, humbling himself and taking on a human body and further humbling himself even to the point of death, a humiliating death. And he did so with us in mind, with faces and names. He was thinking of us. He died that we might live. Ellen and I can say we've been so blessed by this body, especially over the seminary season, for the whole time that I've been here, maybe maybe eight, nine years now, but you guys have just poured out kindness and blessing on us. And God's people, we have seen, are able to manifest this kind of sacrificial love. There were people that we didn't even ask for help from, and they would send multiple thousands of dollars at a time when it was very helpful. And we weren't you know, disclosing our needs at that point simply friends saying, we're good. The Lord has blessed us. This wasn't a high earner. They just gave us money because they knew we were in that position. We have someone in our circles who owns a rental, they have a rental situation and they just took the income from that rental and they gave all of it to us. Okay? And they're not super wealthy either. Okay? They're not independently wealthy, drive a very modest car, not a, a spectacular home that they themselves lived in. They had this rental property, and they just gave us the money to help us through seminary. So yes, we're called to and we can mirror this sacrificial love that we see here in these first disciples. Now having said that, the other half of the answer I said is Twofold. It comes from the fact that we can easily get the wrong idea here when we read the words, all things in common. It's in verse 44. I got to clarify, the church in Acts was not a commune and giving wasn't compulsory. Here's what one commentator writes. This is John Polhill. Verse 45 speaks against the early Christian community adopting a practice of community ownership. The imperfect tense is used, indicating that this was a recurrent, continuing practice. Their practice was to sell their property and goods and apportion the proceeds whenever a need arose. This is much more in keeping with the Old Testament ideal of community equality, of sharing with the needy, so that, and I quote Deuteronomy, there will be no poor among you. Then also in Acts 6, we see that the office of deacon was formally established for this explicit purpose of helping people with their material needs. So giving wasn't forced, but the disciples loved one another and gave freely. We see this in verse 46. Luke writes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Generous. The the emphasis here is on their readiness to give. It's free and sacrificial giving. And so we ought to pray to God that he would give us here a similar spirit of love and generosity toward one another. How can you give your time and stuff and money to serve your brothers and sisters here in this body? There's more. I would say a lot more on this point, but we've got to move on to the third point, the third commitment of the church. So let me just transition to that. In Psalm 67 The psalmist cries out to God with this request Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. It's a prayer that all peoples would come to know and love God. And in many ways, our passage here in Acts 2 marks the beginning of God's answer to that prayer. Of course, perhaps Jesus' incarnation is, but here in Jerusalem, we see sort of the, the beginning of the explosion as God's word is beginning to grow, and there's this great missionary movement that's about to unfold. So, this is the third point. The second point was about fellowship. Third point here a flourishing church is committed to witness. To witness. And we find this, it's really the central th- thrust of Acts as a whole, but in our passage, we find this in verse 47. This new church we read there had favor with all the people. Luke also writes, And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The Lord ultimately caused the growth. But of course he did so through the faithful witness of his people. Between the preaching of the apostles and the confirmation of their message with signs and wonders, paired with the supernatural love, of the disciples, more and more people were compelled, again, by God's Spirit to believe and confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Ultimately, the word of God has this unstoppable outward propulsion and momentum, and that is by design. The gospel was never meant to remain confined here within this believing community. Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1, And this is the theme verse for the entire book. We've seen it before. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Christian life is not just about our own personal trust in Jesus. It's not about our own holiness. It's not just even about our our life together. But it's about our witness to the world. It's about inviting all who are willing to join us in what we do here, which is worshiping and delighting in Jesus. This is fundamental to the life of a healthy church. The thing is, once we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we can't help but to want others to know what we know. Listen to what the Apostle John writes in the opening of his first letter. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The apostles' joy and our joy is made full and complete only as we share the treasure that we have with others. And C.S. Lewis makes this Incredibly helpful observation along these lines in his reflections on the Psalms. I was put onto this through John Piper, who's been a major spiritual mentor in my life. But Lewis writes this, and it's right after he observes that people naturally praise whatever they love. He writes, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, So they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Right, when we discover something truly awesome, in the proper true sense of that word awesome, we can't help but to want others to know about it. And in fact, our enjoyment is only made full and it's heightened as we share it with others. I think this is why team sports is such a big deal. We love to enjoy things together, right? I'm a skier, you guys all know that. And if there's any skiers or snowboarders in the room, you can testify that a good powder day is made twice as good when you get to share it with someone else. When you're hollering through the trees and when you get to the bottom of the run, you want to be able to look over at someone next to you and just say, man, that was amazing. That was amazing. That's when our joy is complete. When you find a new album that you love, you want others to have listened to it and and to be able to say, wow, that's great music. Well, it's the same experience that drives our witness. We have experienced something wonderful and beautiful in the love of our Savior, and we want others to know about it as well. This highlights our continual need to satisfy ourselves in the Lord, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to find our contentment in the one who made us and loves us. So are we still delighting in God? It's a question we need to challenge ourselves with rather often. There's so many distractions, so many lesser loves in life that pull us away. And perhaps daily, we have to wake up and ask ourselves, is God good? Is he worthy of my time and attention today? We have to delight ourselves in the Lord. That is the power for our witness. So let me make three suggestions now as to what our witness might look like. Firstly, as a church... We already have a significant witness in the community simply by gathering together each Lord's Day. I was just in Utah, as you will know, and actually the gathering of believers there on the Lord's Day is really truly a huge part of their witness, especially in that culture. People actually show up. Mormons see the Christians gathering, and um, many of them are, are questioning their own faith, and they will simply show up in a Christian church uninvited. Part of our visible holiness is is taking this day and dedicating it to the Lord in a real and concrete way. And the doors are open. Many of you have invited people, unbelieving family and friends, your classmates at school, your co-workers, and so on. Now, that's a wonderful thing. That's how it should be, right? People may not take you up on that offer, but I've said this before, it begins with making the offer. A couple of weeks ago, I received a text from uh, a lady I had met at a park when I was hanging with the boys and met her and her husband. I invited her to come. Didn't hear from her for months. We had exchanged numbers, and I gave Ellen her number. Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, this is like yeah, again three months ago. Now a couple of weeks ago, she texts back and says, "Hey, you know, tell your wife to text me. I'd like to meet up at the park." So we don't know what God might do with an invitation. Who knows what will come of that relationship, but hopefully something we pray. So consider, make the invite, and I'm just going to keep beating this drum whenever I get the chance. Make the invite. Again, not just the Lord's Day, one-on-one Bible studies, group Bible studies. You'll be surprised at what people will come to. Let me also now, as we're talking about witness, give a plug for the Good News Club. Uh, We announced it last Sunday during the congregational meeting. This may or may not happen. This is an opportunity for us. The Good News Club is a ministry in which really any Christian can go into a local school. So long as they're open to outside groups, they have to allow the Good News Club in. And we just have a golden opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with whatever kids show up. And sometimes you do get non-believing families sending their kids because it's free childcare. And so talk to me if you are interested and volunteering for this opportunity. It's from uh, 3 to about 4.30 once a week, three times a month that you would be potentially committing to this. But we hope if we get five, six people doing this that um, you wouldn't be on the line every week. Anyways, that's a plug. Good News Club, golden witness opportunity to love the children in our local schools. And there's one just down the street that we could go to. So the Flourishing Church is committed to witness That's the third and last point. So we've covered a lot of ground uh, with these three commitments: worship, fellowship, and witness. And I really do think that the Word of God makes it plain, both here in this passage and throughout the Scriptures, that these are fundamental to the life of a flourishing church and to the life of a flourishing individual. And so, in closing, I just want to say this: if If you are personally in a place, and I've noticed this in my own life, that if I've let one of these commitments fall through the cracks, it is so easy to fall into a spiritual slump, to feel like your life is a bit out of balance, to be wondering about your sense of purpose and direction, or even if you're just simply out of touch with God. Now, any of that could just be in how the Lord arranges our days and, and it may be a trial that we're in, a sense of his presence being removed from us, even though his love is still on us. But let me also suggest that we often get into these weird places, these funks in our lives, because one of these commitments is at a low ebb in our lives, and it needs our renewed attention. Jesus said he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And I really do think that we're robbed of the life God intends for us and for fullness of joy if any one of these things is is lacking. Or to state the same thing positively, I think we only experience life as God intended it when our lives are directed outward, as we see here in Acts 2. First to God, and then to one another, and then to the lost world. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's ask that God would make it so in our lives. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you've given us this picture of these first disciples. Lord, who loved you, who heard the message of the apostles, of new life in the Lord Jesus, of his death and of his resurrection, of that free offer of mercy and forgiveness and pardon and eternal life in him. And Lord, we pray first of all, God, that there would be a seed planted in the heart of any here who have not yet truly taken a hold of that offer. God, we ask for your salvation by your spirit. Lord, grant your mercy and grace to whoever would need it. God, continue your work in our lives. God, both as we seek you, as individuals united to your Son, but also as we seek to be faithful as a people, as a new community, Lord, gathered around your Son. Lord, do this in us by your Spirit, apart from whom we have no hope of growth or life or joy. God, grant us that we would be pleasing to you. Thank you for hearing our prayer, which we offer in Jesus' name. Amen.